0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke
1: Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction. By Russus John Rushdunning. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life. Chalcedon Report Number 78 The idea of genius is an important but too little studied aspect of Western history. It is an important pagan concept which still governs our thinking. We can begin to understand what genius means if we recognize that it is basically the same word as the Arabic jinn or genie. The word genius comes from the Latin, and the idea is Roman, but it is hard to distinguish in at times from the Arabic idea because the two are so similar. The idea of genius comes out of pagan animism and ancestor worship. The genius of a family, house, group, or state was the protecting, guiding, inspiring supernatural spirit which took care of it and was also the object of its worship. All good Romans, therefore, worship the genius of Rome. Unquote. Quote, the genius of Rome unquote, was the divine power protecting Rome, the Roman mission, Rome itself, quote, divine Rome, unquote, and its heroic leaders and emperors. Godlike men were believed to receive from the gods a special destiny above that of ordinary mortals. These men became the lairs, or genius, for their time. But the coming of Christianity, the idea of genius, receded, as did the related Greek idea of the hero. The hero was a great protector of men, who was descended from the gods, or born of a god, and he was worshipped as a god after his death. Because biblical faith makes a sharp and clear distinction between god and man, between the uncreated and divine being of God and the created and creaturely being of men, the idea of the genius and of the hero was for some time in the background. With the revival of Greek philosophy, of Aristotle and of Plato, the idea of the genius again came to the fore, especially with the Renaissance. The hero or divine leader of men came to be a leader of the state the leader or hero now became a commanding and totalitarian figure. The genius, the man with divine powers of insight and guidance, came to be the artist. Previously, in Christian Europe, the artist was not an artist in the modern sense. He was a craftsman, an artisan, and a businessman who was a specialist in his field. In recent years, one composer, Igor Trevinsky, specifically denied being an artist in the modern sense and saw himself as an old-fashioned semi-Christian artisan, an opinion for which he was widely attacked. The Christian artisan did his work like any other skilled specialist, without any pretensions. But the Renaissance, the artist was not only regarded as a man of genius, but also called by extravagant names, quote, the divine Aretino, unquote. Quote, the divine Michelangelo, unquote, and so on. But this was not at all. In paganism, the genius had been essentially a political figure in the developed form of the idea of genius. The medieval artisan was essentially related to the faith, and his greatest work was in the church. After the Renaissance, the artist associated himself increasingly with the state. The church continued to be a great patron of art, And in the following eras, such creations as Baroque church art certainly represented very great outlays of money. But artists found their chief voice and their best self-expression in works done for the royalty and the nobility for the state. The neo-pagan genius and hero were working together. The artist, and especially the writer, began to see himself as a genius, producing for the ages. He was thus an elite man. But he was more than merely an elite man. The elite are the pick of society, the choicest part. The genius is much more than that. He is a supernormal and somewhat supernatural breakthrough into society and thus above even the elite. The literary elite at first identified themselves with the nobility and with royalty, with the great heroes of the arena of politics. With the Enlightenment, however, the artists, especially the literary and pseudo-philosophical ones, began to turn against the nobility and royalty, even while often fawning on them. The French Revolution was preceded by a long war by men like Voltaire, Diderot, and others on church and state alike, with a new concept of society vaguely imagined as the true and coming order. In the French Revolution, men who believed in their genius overthrew a social order and began the ruthless destruction of all things which ran counter to their, quote, inspiration, unquote. Because the middle class had been held back and hindered by the monarchy, the literary elite briefly championed the middle class cause as a useful weapon towards overthrowing the old regime. Very quickly, however, they turned on the middle classes with venom. In the 19th century, the idea of the hero as the organizing principle of society, together with his instructor, the artistic genius, became very common. It was widely taught by such men as Carlyle, Nietzsche, and Wagner, and in the 20th century by Spengler, Stephan George, D. H. Lawrence, and others. The world they held cannot be understood by the faith and creeds of Christianity but only by intuition history, and the hero. The evolution of things in history is in terms of the hero who acts without being hindered by old moralities and creeds. He incarnates the true evolution of the world and brings in a new order as the next step of evolution. His attitude is pragmatic, not dogmatic. He has his roots in the folk or people, and he moves them into the future and progress by his ruthless, powerful drive. The hero is a realist who is not afraid to kill or to sin in order to further his cause. As Bentley summarized Carlyle's view, quote, the man who is undefiled by pitch must be in the wrong, for he has not been willing to sin and compromise. He has not seized reality by its filthy hand. Unquote. Eric Bentley, A Century of Hero Worship, page 56. Boston, Beacon Press, 1957, second edition. The ideas of the men of quote, genius unquote, of the nineteenth and twentieth centuries helped produce the quote, heroes unquote, they imagined, men like Lenin, Stalin, Hitler, and Mayo. Moreover, the genius, having broken quickly with the middle class, then turned against the middle class savagely for failing to bow down to him and to recognize his genius. He called, therefore, for the liquidation of these insensitive clods who could not appreciate genius and were too much concerned about business and profits. The quote, genius, unquote, class or elite turned now to the working class, the proletariat, as a new hope for society, as a people who would follow the leadership of genius into a brave new world. The Russian Revolution was the longed-for proletarian revolution. The workers, however, failed the artists and writers they did not appreciate genius only by a dictatorship could the state proceed with its plan for a new society in the 20th century and especially with the 1960s the men of quote genius unquote began to look for a new class to overthrow workers and the middle class alike the outlaw the existentialist genius in particular began to see the criminal as the true hero And this criminal hero definitely includes the homosexual in the forefront. And prison rights became revolutionary events in which men of genius located new heroes. Remember, too, that the prison days of Lenin and Hitler were widely held as part of their heroic history. For some time now, the men of genius have been in search of a society to lead. Some have dreamed of a society of programmed men, as in B.F. Skinner's intellectual nightmare, men with electrodes in their brains to obey the commandments of heroes and geniuses. The genius has been increasingly a man with a pathological hatred of society, of normality, of, quote, squares, unquote, of a world which rejects his privileged and superior wisdom. He has not found that world in the nobility and royalty, nor in the middle and working classes, nor will he find it among the outlaws, who, like him are incapable of true loyalty and allegiance, let alone subservience. The genius believes that he is beyond the law, that he should, in fact, be the organizing force in society today, even as in ancient Rome the genius was worshipped, and in the person of the emperor ruled. By the 1830s the writers of France had come to a logical conclusion of the doctrine of genius, quote, everything is permitted to men of intelligence, unquote. Caesar Grana, Bohemian versus Bourgeois, page 42, New York, Basic Books, 1964. Their hatred of the normal world was so great that one writer of that era said, quote, I would give half my talents to be a bastard, Ibid, page 145. In his excellent study of Sartre, Molnar has shown how the idea of a bastard and intellectual came to be identified. The bastard intellectual is a heroic outlaw at war with middle-class society and culture, deliberately at odds with normal, well-integrated people. Thomas Molnar, Sartre, Ideologue of Our Times, pages 5 FF, New York, Funk and Wagnalls, 1968. The bastard intellectual genius is in search of a society to lead, but he can only disintegrate society. He can neither create nor lead one because the essence of his inspiration is destruction. He no longer looks for a hero, because in his pretensions he no longer needs the hero, but only followers. Such ideas were prominent in Nietzsche, who wrote to his sister in December 1888, You have not the slightest idea what it means to be next of kin to the man and destiny in whom the question of epochs has been settled. Quite literally speaking, I hold the future of mankind in the palm of my hand. Unquote. Everything was settled if only the world would recognize it, but what the world recognized and learned from each bastard intellectual genius was the corrosive, burning hatred of a man and society. the radical contempt of all things save its own superiority and genius. Carlyle said, quote, "There is nothing else but revolution and mutation." the former merely speedier change. Unquote. The goal thus is perpetual revolution for perpetual destruction. The state must obey genius and must liquidate all things in terms of a gospel of perpetual revolution or destruction. The idea of genius in the modern world gained much from Rousseau. Among other things, Rousseau, in his Social Contract, held that, quote, whoever refuses to obey the general will, shall be compelled to do so by the whole body. This means nothing less than that he will be forced to be free, As Andelson has pointed out, this is echoed in the slogan of Orwell's 1984, quote, Freedom is slavery, unquote. The general will is not merely the democratic majority, it is the genius intellectual's interpretation of what the general will of the whole body or country should be. Robespierre, as spokesman for the Jacobins, said bluntly, Our will is the general will. Robert V. Andelson, Imputed Rights, page 8, Athens, University of Georgia Press, 1971. The old Latin expression, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God, now had a new development. The voice of the genius intellectual is the voice of the people and of the gods. As against the idea of the genius, biblical faith offered and offers to men the idea and office of prophet. Most people make central a secondary aspect of the office of prophet, namely one who foretells the future. The primary function and office of a prophet is to speak for God and to represent Him in total faithfulness to His law word. This is the duty of every man in whatever calling he has. His reliance must not be on his word or his idea of truth or his concept of good and evil, but on the absolute and unchanging word of God. That word must be applied to church, state, school, science, all society and all learning, and its implications faithfully developed. The Christian must work for the liquidation of the idea of genius and its replacement by the calling of the prophet. But this is not all. The believer has a priestly office. In his priestly office, the believer must dedicate himself, his social order and institutions, his family, work, and all things to the glory and service of God. Quote, Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Unquote. The Westminster Catechism tells us, This is a priestly calling and task, and its emphasis is on joy. The priesthood of Israel was radically separated from death and mourning. It could not indulge in grief as could other men, because the priesthood set forth not only the triumph of God, but joy in Him. Nehemiah told a sorrowful people, "...This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for this day is holy unto our Lord, neither be ye sorry, For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. The priestly calling of man brings him joy and peace. Man also has a royal calling in Christ to be king under God and to exercise dominion over the earth by knowledge, authority, science, invention, forming, and in every other way. As kings under God in his law, we must oppose the lawless idea of the hero the Fuhrer, the dictatorship of the proletariat, and all like variations of the pagan faith. This dominion under God means the development of all things under His law, and it is a mandate for orderly progress and advancement. It means culture. The word culture is related to cultivate and agriculture. It means tillage, development, improvement. Culture requires time, capitalization, and work. The bastard intellectual genius program of revolution is also a war against culture and calls for the destruction of culture which can only thrive with time, capitalization, and cultivation. Culture cannot be limited to the arts. It is a myth propagated by the artists of the modern era that culture means what they do. Culture however, is the faith or religion of a people externalized in their total activities true culture is today being warred on, and many people travel widely to see the relics of culture which are surviving our age of revolution. The state, as the apotheosis and incarnation of genius, is proving to be an anti-cultural, anti-human ideal, a destroyer of man and society. When the Bolsheviks were accused of being anti-culture, they answered the charge by turning to the past. They revived the Tsar's ballet. This is the way of the yahoo on both sides of the iron curtain. If our hope is in a hero or in genius, we will wait for such a leader, and we will get a furor or dictator, and we will deserve him. If however we see our calling as prophets, priests, and kings under God and in Christ, we will begin the task of reconstruction wherever we are, because we are the future. The Christians of the Roman Empire were ready to swear allegiance to the emperor, but they refused to swear by the genius of the emperor, and for this they were persecuted. Tertullian, Apologeticus 32 Under God they could not surrender their own calling under God to the will of man, nor commit their future to the will of man. The culture of tomorrow will not come from the state, and the bastard intellectual genius elite of the state. It will come from us who are prophets, priests, and kings under God, who are doing our duty under God and to His glory. St. Paul's counsel still stands, quote, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord, unquote. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. The world of the hero and the genius will disappear. Good riddance. Calcedon Report Number 79, March 1972 One of the persistent problems facing the state in every age has been the question of authority. How can the state justify its claim to power over the people? By what right does the state claim its jurisdiction and its authority? The basic argument has usually been historical and appeal to tradition, inheritance, and long possession. Kings have justified their rule by appealing to the fact that they inherited the throne, all the while conveniently forgetting that someone in their family's past once seized the throne. Similarly, civil governments which once gained power by revolution piously condemn all new revolutions and declare that they are the only legitimate authority. A painfully pathetic example of this tired argument appears in Vine Deloria, Jr., quote, An Indian's Plea to the Churches, unquote. Los Angeles Times, Sunday, February 6, 1972, page G1 and 2. Deloria, an Indian, says to the white Americans that before their coming, quote, we inhabited and owned the continent upon which you now live. Unquote. The heart of his argument is that the Indian has a prior right to America and thus a moral claim against the rest of us. The fact is that there were no such quote, "people" unquote, as quote, "the American Indian" unquote, prior to Columbus, but many warring peoples, often culturally and perhaps racially diverse, each supplanting others before them and seeking ascendancy over one another. Shall we acknowledge the Indian's quote, "right" unquote, to America? And must then the Indian relinquish it to a tribe which can prove it was the original, displaced, quote, owner, unquote, of America? Shall we say also that England must be dispossessed of all who are of Norman blood and return to Anglo-Saxons? Must the Anglo-Saxons return it to the Britons and the Britons to those whom they displaced? And must France be returned to the Celts or Gauls, Galatians, in its midst, and they in turn restore it to the Bosque, whom they displaced? The historical argument leads to moral insanity. The authority of a state cannot depend on an original historical claim, although possession has an element of authority to it. Another answer to the problem of authority is the democratic one. It was raised in an English rebellion of 1381, when the popular cry was, When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then The gentleman. Authority rests in the people, supposedly, and the only moral ground of authority is the will of the people, in this view. In effect, the voice of the people is the voice of God. This view again breaks down in practice. Must the civil government be changed or overthrown when the people change their mind? Is man any more than the state the source of authority? This is the heart of the issue. Is authority derived from man? from history, from the state, or from tradition, or is it derived from God? On the other hand, is it derived from force? Very clearly force and the state are inseparable. The state has the power of the sword, the power of coercion, and it can compel men and take life. Is its only authority simply power, naked force? More than a few people have held this to be the case. Some of these have been radical statists and other anarchists. In either case, the state is not much more than a gangster who rules with a gun in his hand and only by force. This is a view which appeals most to the intellectual simple-minded and morally derelict. It denies that the governing force in history is moral and religious. Men allow power to that which, rightly or wrongly, they hold to be more morally legitimate and right. When men ceased to believe in kings as the repository of divine right and authority, then kings quickly gave way to, quote, the people, unquote, as the source of right. Today, quote, the democratic state, unquote, has moral authority in the eyes of the people, and they will endure more at its hands than men earlier endured from kings. Men at one time believed in the, quote, king's touch, unquote, the healing power of the king. This faith was mild compared to the faith of contemporary man in the power of the state. The state is looked to for every kind of answer. The solution to problems of poverty, health, war, natural disasters, and even death itself is supposedly going to be overcome by the state's power to apply science and solutions to every realm." Recently, someone in California filed suit against the federal government for damages in the 1971 earthquake. The state has become God for modern man, and therefore the state is responsible and accountable for all things. Perhaps someone will next accuse the state because natural death overcomes man. The state is powerful today because the state has a religious and moral force in the lives of people. The, quote, common man, unquote, has not heard of Hegel, but he is a Hegelian, and the state is for him a God walking on the earth whose duty it is to provide him with cradle-to-grave security. A state senator from a very conservative district recently told me that, in answer to a questionnaire geared to revealing the implicit socialism and statism of people, 75% of the people in his district were shown to be statists to the core while formally conservative. He added that however socialistic many legislators are, the pressure from their districts is even more to the left in terms of practical demands. Even people who cry for lower taxes demand more benefits and subsidies, all of which means more statism. Statism is thus the religion and the morality of most men. The state, however, is also very weak today in that it is a God that fails people and its more brilliant sons are savagely at war with it because of its failures. They demand all things from the state and then turn on it savagely as a bell that has failed them. Their morality and faith is still statist, but it is deeply infected with bitterness and despair. Force rules history, but that ruling force is moral and religious force and conviction. The letters of Junius held otherwise. The letters spoke of, quote, The first original right of the people, from which all laws derive their authority, and also of tradition as authority. One precedent creates another. They soon accumulate and constitute a law. What yesterday was fact, today is doctrine. But men overthrow both precedent and original right when it violates their moral convictions. So the view is superficial. Men find their basic and ultimate authority in what they hold to be truth. The modern age being a humanistic one, men have sought for truth on the human and temporal level, and the state has thus come to be the basic institution for them. Humanistic man believes that the state is the way to the good life. The state is the final authority over men, and the state is the supreme court in all things. Not surprisingly, The courts of the state have increasingly become law-makers, because the standard for legality is man and the fullness of life for man. If capital punishment limits man's life, then capital punishment must be ruled unlawful. If war limits man's life, then war must be challenged in the courts. If men have a quote-right unquote to good food, housing, clothing, and all things else, whether or not they work for them, then the courts must and will establish men's quote, rights, unquote, to these things. The courts are keeping pace with the religious beliefs of modern man. In view of our humanism, it is not surprising that the constitutionalism is virtually dead. Even the conservative defenders of the Constitution want the results of it without the Christian presuppositions and faith which undergird it. As Drucker points out, quote, Constitutionalism is much more than a respect for law. It is a belief that power, to be beneficial, must be subject to general and unchangeable rules. It is an assertion that ends and means cannot be meaningfully separated or considered apart from each other, Peter F. Drucker, Men, Ideas, and Politics, page 175, New York, Harper and Row, 1971. Constitutionalism rests on a belief that the sovereign God has an absolute law order to which every human order must relate itself. See Edward S. Corwin, the quote, Higher Law, unquote, Background of American Constitutional Law, Ithaca, Cornell, 1955. The essence of humanistic law is that instead of relating social order to God's absolute law, society must relate law to human needs. This belief is the moral force behind the modern state and the source of its authority. The failure of humanistic authority is that it is essentially totalitarian and or anarchistic. If the people are the source of authority, then we must either wind up in a dictatorship in which the general will or the consensus find its incarnation in a leader, an elite, or a party, or in anarchism in which all men as gods do each their, quote, own thing, unquote. There is a drift in both directions today. The basic decisions by states in the second half of the 20th century have been made outside the normal legislative channels. Thus, in the United States, the basic and most important decisions have not been made by Congress and the normal political process, as Drucker has pointed out. In domestic politics, the basic decisions with respect to school segregation and reapportionment were not made by Congress, but by the Supreme Court. These decisions, while opposed by many, met favor with many, and they were in line with the basic liberal, humanistic faith of church, school, and people. The opposition to these measures has also depended largely on non-political protest. The legislative branches of, quote, democratic, unquote, civil government have not been the primary means of opposition. Again, in foreign affairs, the U.S. committed itself to two major wars, in Korea and then in Vietnam, without any legislative action. These commitments were aspects of a humanistic and messianic save-the-world faith, and they were made by Truman and Kennedy, heroes of liberal humanism. The opposition, however, which has developed towards the Vietnam War is also grounded in humanism, And this opposition has bypassed state means increasingly for direct action and pressure. Thus, while faith in the state remains, there is an increasing breakdown in the authority of the state because its moral foundations are crumbling. The decline in law enforcement and the rise of lawlessness is a symptom of the breakdown. What many people forget is that law enforcement is not basically a police and court affair, but a moral concern. Most laws cannot be enforced unless they are first of all enforced by the moral conscience of the people. No state, however dictatorial, can enforce a law which is radically at odds with the conscience of its people. Before a revolution can occur in the political realm, it must be preceded by a revolution in the religious and moral sphere. Before the French Revolution could occur, a religious and moral decline and collapse had sapped the life of France. The Russian Revolution was preceded by a widespread decline of vital faith and a growing humanism. The people in the Soviet Union have widespread discontents, but most of them were morally in agreement with the regime and thus lacked the moral force which is the forerunner and mainspring of change. The modern state thus has great power, but a declining authority. In this, it resembles the regimes of kings like Charles I and James II of England, power without moral authority, in each case a prelude to ruin. In William Langland's poem, Piers Plowman, the angel declares to clergy and king of the late 14th century, quote, King and a prince art thou, tomorrow nothing, unquote. The moral force was gone from the social order and the result was a long era of revolution and civil war when men who had power today, tomorrow, had nothing. Langland's answers were unfortunately too much like those of the royalty and nobility of his day and his earnest hope for a new order was frustrated. His answer was, quote, charity, unquote, and a bold and heedless following of Christ. In this he echoed the, quote, virtues, unquote, prized by the upper class of his day the very men who were destroying England for them virtue means quote, a prodigal generosity largesse and the quality of being physically rash outrageous unquote. Gervais Matthew the court of Richard II page 22 New York Norton 1968 in this impotence Langland is followed by the youth of our day who echo the statist principles and humanism they are supposedly rebelling against. The only moral force which can undercut the power of statism is a biblical faith in the sovereign and triune God and His absolute law word. God said of all the nations of Isaiah's day and of all history that they are, quote, nothing, unquote, in His sight, Isaiah 40:23 through 24 Quote, Behold, the nations are as a drop of... Of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. Unquote. Isaiah 40:15. As long as men believe that salvation comes by the state, its politicians and leaders, and by the laws of the state, they will give the power of a god to the state, and the moral force of a god as well. In our day, both conservatives and leftists are at odds with the state and often at war with it, but both are agreed in seeing it as their savior and they concentrate their energies on status action and control as the key to salvation. They want to capture the state machinery, such as its socialistic schools, rather than to establish independent and Christian schools, however angry they may be at the state and rebellious against authority. They will bow down before the state as their God and Savior until they turn to the true Lord and God and serve Him only. The state will shrink to its proper place only when men give God His due priority and authority. There is no other way. The power of the state will not be broken by lawless rebellion, but a godly faith. As Sister M. Margaret P. McCarran observed recently, Christ came into a world that was exactly the same kind of mess. He honored legitimate authority no matter how evil its bearer. He lived peaceably in the world of real people for 30 years in spite of revolutions, overtaxation, aggressor nations, and surrounding paganism. Our era is not a mere repetition of its historical pattern. It is the same pattern. However, our Lord said, I have overcome the world. He is still saying it it is still the same world unquote. "Letter December the 7th 1971 The world has always been ruled by religious and moral force the issue is between the moral forces of humanism and christianity you have your choice are you a part of the problem or a part in the victory Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushby. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus
0: perfect sacrifice, the love he us by his pain that very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me, and the love he deserves we should.